So what hooked you on Flawed Heroes? The best leaders are just absolutely transparent about who they are. Too many leaderships, especially as you get into larger organizations, and I feel like they have to put this facade on, this forward-facing, and I've got everything figured out by. And really, most team members don't want to know that you have all the answers, right? They just want to know that you're asked the right questions. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey, all Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another fun episode today I have for you, Chris Rack who is the CEO over at MRP, and they're revolutionizing how sales and marketing organizations reach and connect to the right buying groups and decision makers, cost-effectively, driving engagement and revenue globally and at scale. So a lot of different things are technology. And I want to dig into some ABM account-based marketing a little bit, talk on, on this episode. But I'm saying but. So if you don't know about ABM, you're going to learn about that a little bit with, with Chris and the, and the technology. But Chris, y'all, uh, he's got quite a background and a, a very interesting leader. And I think you're going to love this. He's got 17 years as a revenue leader, building high growth revenue organizations while maintaining profitability and something, y'all. He's also a TV and movie, and movie fan with a passion for flawed heroes. And so I'm going to ask him about that because we need to know a little bit more about the flawed heroes world. And he's a father of four. Man, he's a busy guy. Uh, and his family's been a huge part of his story. And we'll dig into that. Chris, welcome to Lead the Team. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you having me on. So I have to admit, I need to hear more about the Flawed Heroes because I understand you have a wall of Flawed Heroes in your office, including some autographed ones. Yeah, what is this wrote, about? It, yeah, it's come with me through many offices, but I have like, I started like collecting them many years ago, like eight by 10 autograph shots of different you know, what I consider flawed heroes throughout TV and movies. So a couple examples would be um, Michael Scott from The Office. Indeed Michael flawed. <laughs> yeah, very much a hero, though. Um, you know, Elliot Stabler from Law & Order SVU. Um, um, you know, like characters like that, right, that really uh, exemplify like everything they do. They do it for the right reason. They just don't always do it the right way. You know, another, uh, one of my favorites is Dr. Gregory House. Um, oh, uh, always house yes always yes. does the always does the right thing in the end of the day but generally the way he gets there is massively flawed just given that he's a, a terribly flawed human at its core so well, so what hooked you on flawed heroes because no, nothing I, to like flawed heroes but you've got a wall you know i i guess i've always thought that the best leaders are just absolutely transparent about who they are too many leaderships especially as you get into larger organizations and feel like they have to put this facade on, this forward-facing, I've got everything figured out by. And really, most team members don't want to know that you have all the answers, right? They just want to know that you're asked the right questions, right? And that's usually one of the, the biggest misconceptions that I've seen. So um, that's where I focus a lot of my time. I know I'm terribly flawed. I admit it. I speak to it, right? I talk about my yeah, you know, things I do well, but also things I don't do well, and I'm you know fairly transparent well, with my team as we grow. Well, so what? It's an interesting place to start, but so what uh -huh. are your favorite flaws? 
my own personal ones or just in general? Well, your personal, well, whichever uh, ones work for you most as leader. Because yeah. what so I'm, I'm hearing is, and I think this is curious, and the, and the flawed leaders, number one, what I'm hearing is, Ben, wait a minute, we're all flawed. And if if we're trying to act like we all don't belong on the flawed wall, then we're just blowing smoke. But you're going the extra step and you're saying, hey, what makes these leaders great in their own way actually is their flaws. Uh, but it, but it's having great intent. Um, and, yeah, it's really it just allows your your team to connect with you, right? Because again, we, everyone has flaws, but you know, just yeah. pretending that they don't exist creates this wall of vagueness that no one really likes. So, I mean, I'm a I'm I'm very introverted, right? I mean, I've learned ambivert skills over the over the years, given that um, my role requires me to be in some public facing and or large group environments from time to time, but. I'm mentally exhausted in anything that involves collaboration and team activity. I've, I've always been an introvert, and I've always been very much focused on that side. Um, so some people would consider that a flaw because I'm not generally the light of the room when I join in, right? And I've, I've been a sales leader for many years as well. So usually that the sales leader is like the the charismatic winner, you know, whereas I'm I'm very much not. So being in a crowded room, you do it, but you need to recharge your battery afterwards because it, dra- it drains on it. That's interesting. So how being an introvert and being a revenue sales driven successful leader uh, by all accounts here, what have the benefits been for you in that space? It's kind of been a perfect storm because selling has become more selling has become more data driven just in the past 10 years, right? You, I mean, mm-hmm. used to be whining and dining, flying around the country, big expense accounts, relationship-based, lots of handshakes, right? But my, I mean, my revenue teams are built somewhat mathematically. You know, there's a lot of data that goes into and process and a lot of science that happens. So like that part of my brain uh, really helps me to do that. And it requires a lot of, you know, early mornings, late nights, Excel spreadsheets, recordings, and, you know, that type of stuff, right? So it's kind of been... Mm interesting flow that I, I don't think I would have been successful in the 90s as a seller you know like so the new era of, of sellers has kind of allowed folks like me to step into the the forefront a bit and and grow and, and kind of you know lead and, and do things a little bit different than most you know I mean think about any sales movie you've ever seen Wall Street you know uh boiler Gordon Roo, gecko you know all of, like, another all, flawed leader <laughs> exactly right like all of those movies have this personification of sellers and sales organizations as these charismatic swindlers, right? And the reality is like those are those that's a dying breed, right? Like the the handshake and close the deal seller is is very much becoming a way of the past. And so what I hear in that is where the super duper extroverted sales leader needs to be out in the field all the time, talking, talking, talking on the phone. Your introvertedness, you're able to spend time by yourself, understanding the data, hunkering down, and then be able to bring that to your clients in a different way. Yeah, so that uh, it makes so much sense, and that's your business because you're not a sales business; you're a data business that happens to do sales, at least from in marketing, at least from what I could tell right. from. Yeah. Which is so cool, and I think for leaders to think about that, yeah, embracing your flaws, putting them on the wall when it makes sense. And helping the helping your team do the same because we do hide our flaws, you know, in so many ways. And, and it seems like that's a great way to, to go about it. Now, one of the posts that I've seen you making that have given me a good chuckle 
is how effectively you use Mr. Miyagi. I've never yeah. seen, been on LinkedIn a long time, people. I don't think I've ever seen Miyagi used, especially not multiple times, and definitely not so effectively to communicate a message. Tell me about his flawed nature. You know, like Karate Kid is one of those movies that, you know, I grew up with, right? And it's always resonated with me. It's it's a terrible movie, right? And in, in the grand scheme of like, <laughs> never going to win an Oscar, right? But it's just so enjoyable to watch. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I've always like... The thing I always loved about Mr. Miyagi is that he was very much flawed, right? I mean, like there's scenes where, you know, he he had a rough life. He had he's had hardship. He's had, oh. you know, things that have happened to him that have impacted him emotionally. And there are scenes where, you know, the, the bond that happens between him and, and the Daniel character really becomes tight once Daniel sees those flaws and understands that he had a rough life. And why is he... Mm -hmm. Why is he a lonely old man that needed a, a, you know, like that? So like once that happens, again, it's 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 the typical flawed hero vibe. I'm fascinated by it, right? And just a lot of the general, and also like the Miyagi character actually, you know, really personifies Pat Morita as an actor as well, right? Most people mm. don't realize that he was a very flawed man, right? You know, Mr. Miyagi, you know, Pat Morita was a, an alcoholic, had drug issues, et cetera, over the many wow, years. Yeah. Like he was able to put on this. He was able to do his job, right, and put on this this amazing performance as an iconic leader, right, as an as an iconic, you know, voice in that generation. But he was also a terribly flawed man in general. That's why I'm fascinated yeah. by. Him. And I think nostalgic wise, you know, he, you know, now that the Cobra Kai series has come out to bring the younger generation into the originals, I find that Miyagi just kind of bridges the gap between folks who are my age, a little bit older than me, and now a little bit younger than me as everybody's kind of coming together. Oh, so cool. Yeah, I remember seeing as a kid and just my jaw dropping when you see Daniel come across Miyagi and he's drunk and he's like singing to his dead bride. And yep. his, I mean, that was a that was a harsh reality that I didn't expect at the time. And it really impacted me. And so when I saw your post, I was like, Hmm, this is, uh, this is interesting. And also that, the way that, that sorry, yeah, the scene where the scene where they're catching flies and Daniel catches it and Miyagi gets annoyed. Yeah. Like, he's like, Oh yeah. That's just so human. Right. Like the teacher is annoyed that the, that, the, that his student just randomly gets lucky. It's such a, a perfect scene. And it showcases exactly why that relationship worked so well. Right. Because they had, an unlimited amount of trust in each other. And they both, in essence, needed each other in both ways. And I think that mm. most leaders need their teams as much as the team needs the leader, right? Wow. And if you have a leader who doesn't feel that, then they're probably not a leader. They're probably a boss or a manager. Wow. I got to chill on that. Those are, those are true words from my perspective. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So if you could go back to your 25-year-old self, kind of taking it, taking this in a little bit different direction, and you're just starting your career, what single piece of advice would you give yourself back then? This one's fairly easy for me. I would, I would... I have a, a slogan that I have actually tattooed on my foot, you know, and it's, it's basically it's, it's BU, they'll adjust, right? Um, I spent most of my, not only my my career, but also my my growing up trying to like fit into what I perceived the norm was of the world around me, right? Like mm. 
what what is it what what is the norm of a high school student what is the norm of a college student what's the norm of a post college sales professional right you know all of that and i i tend to i tend to follow most of those trends and it wasn't until my mid maybe late 30s where i was just like you know what i'm done i'm just gonna be me right um mm. i went from zero tattoos to many many tattoos in about a two and a half year period because i've always wanted them and i just said i'm i'm going to do this and i don't care if it has an impact on my career or if it doesn't it's just good this is going to be who i am but i almost always wear a hat you know like uh, i wear shorts 90 percent of the year even in the cold right and whether i'm meeting with the ceo of a global 500 organization or one of my team members on my sdr team i'm going to be me and if that particular person doesn't like me for it or won't do business with me, then that's probably not the type of person I would want to do business with anyway. So that's the advice I would give myself. Just be you. Wow. So was there one moment that really inspired this, this jump for you? No, it just kind of hit me, you know, like, I mean, just, it, it was a, it was a collection of many, many moments over the years. And it just, you just kind of reach the point where you're like, what am I doing? And then, you know, you kind of like move forward on that side. I wish there was an inspirational moment that I could look back to, but there just really wasn't. It just kind of happened. One well, day. sometimes, yeah, it builds over time and you're noticing, maybe you're feeling the inner frustration and then you make, and then you kind of reach, reach the tipping point. And what, what have you noticed in terms of how the world responds, how your clients respond when you made the jump from like, I'll, I'll say for uh, no tattoo, Chris to mini tattoo, Chris. How did things go differently for you after that? I mean, it's a lot of the same. I just feel more comfortable in my own skin, right? Like folks, I don't want to say people respond differently. You know, like I stand out in a crowd, you know, which which is usually different. But I, it's to the point now where a lot of people know of me in my industry, right? So everybody kind of expects it now. It's been a couple you know, years. When I go to a conference, I'm... I usually wear shorts and I'm usually wearing a hat or just a, a fairly casual where everybody else is blazers and polos and all of that. Right. So it, I guess it's kind of become my own personal, you know, it's kind of my own personal brand. It's a great conversation starter. People ask me all the time about, you know, why I'm wearing a hat at a conference and why I have tat, you know, what my tattoos are, what they mean or how I got them and all that. So it's become, it's been great for selling um, and, and connecting with other, you know, like-minded folks in the space, but it's, it's, I'm just better. I'm a better human now that I'm absolutely comfortable in my skin, especially when I'm walking around a conference or on a podcast or in front of my team or all of that, right? Like the I guess the one catalyst moments is I always I always felt uncomfortable, especially in clothing, right? I just, you know, I never felt comfortable in a blazer or that like, and I would wear them because it was like the thing, and I just always felt off. And then when I when I stopped doing it, I just became more free. And when when you're free, you know, you just, you're, you're the best version of yourself to execute on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say. Yeah. I love that. It sounds like, well, Ben, it wasn't how the outward world responded to me. It was, I respond, started responding differently to the outer world because I felt more comfortable and you lead by example. And if, Hey, if, if you're saying, Hey, it's important that you feel your, you know, like you, like you're telling your team, hey, it's it's important that you all can be authentic, can be yourselves around here. Yet clearly you're not that way. That's not going to go very far. But you show up with the tattoos, with the hat, and you're hey, you're like, hey, y'all, I'm wearing shorts to the staff meeting. You guys wear what you want. I mean, you don't have to sell after that. 
Apparently there was a there was a dress code in Philadelphia at MRP before I started. Um and I, I did not know I unintentionally broke it on the first day. I didn't I didn't know there was <laughs> people were like, is there a thing like is there a new dress code? I was like, I, I didn't know there was one, but I apparently there is, I guess. So wow. Uh, That's so funny. You broke the dress code. The CEO broke his dress code of the company the first day. Yeah, unintentionally. It did not do That's a good headline. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good marketing headline. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit ABM. Let's talk about your shirt. So y'all, for for those of you who can't see the video here, Chris is busting out his awesome tattoos here, uh, but he's got a shirt on that says 700K underlined. What is 700K? Uh, 700K is the amount of times in a year that my team asks the B2B buyers um, in our audience, what are they looking to purchase? Right. We we take those 700,000 questions and answers and compile them and collect that data. And then we prioritize, you know, marketing spend and budgets and programs and campaigns for our customers so that their marketing spend is hitting the right people at the right time for the best mm-hmm. conversion. Okay. There's a lot going on in there. So the questions you're asking are automated or they're bot driven or they're uh, no, they are. Uh, we execute those questions via phone, right? I have, uh, oh. I have, I have calling centers in Philadelphia, Belfast, uh, Latin America, and in Australia and APAC. Um, we send a lot of emails as you can probably imagine engaging with our audience base. And we also do quite a bit on the direct mail side. So like the three primary, three primary types of, engagement that we have on behalf of our customers and also in a data collection side or via phone, direct mail, and email. So what do you say to the leaders out there who are like, look, we got a marketing budget. I give that marketing budget to my marketing person and I really don't know what they're doing with it. Doing some banner ads, doing some stuff, uh, just doing stuff. And um, and then, whoa. And they're like, well, what do you mean ABM? What does that stuff have to do with with anything why you know what why is it so important it you know like account-based marketing i mean it's funny i've I've said this for many many years account-based marketing is kind of all the rage but i feel like i've been doing account-based marketing for about 17 years i just called it sales (laughs) so like hit us with it account-based marketing is really just um, understanding that you have a finite amount of resources budget headcount time right and making sure that you're focusing those resources on the accounts that have the highest propensity to buy your solutions. So in the B2C space, there are so many engagements, right? There are so many opportunities to to transact. Hundreds of millions of people buy cereal every day. So if you're able to capture 0.1% of the market, you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And you can do that with with big broadcasty brand type messages, Mm -hmm. right? B2B space, there might be two, 3,000 transactions in your space in a year because we're talking you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of software and technology purchase bigger trans bigger quantities of money flowing through fewer transactions exactly so if you capture 0.1 percent of that market you have zero so you have to capture a larger portion of the market which means you have to be more laser focused with your spend right b to c you can boil the ocean right and hopefully catch and hopefully you know Get a little bit of warmth. In B two B, you have to laser focus like a magnifier on a specific part of the water to to boil that specific segment, and that's where ABM comes from, and that's where it goes. I mean, 
Unfortunately, most there's there's ABM vendors who've convinced the world that ABM is display ads. And really, you know, ABM isn't exactly a product or a solution. It's very much a strategy, right? Kind of like LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah ads on much. LinkedIn. So. And that's missing in a key element, right? The people side of it. Which brings me to my next question here. Well, we'll say I want to go before we leave ABM, y'all. This is a new term for you. Y'all, it's coming. And it's, it's like 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 Chris has been here for a long time, but the tools and what I'm and my research on an MRP is one of you you provide those tools. The tools are better now than they've ever been, but people are still missing the dang boat on it. So it's something to bring up in your next meeting. Definitely. You know. All right. So let's talk about growth. You have a philosophy that I run across here, product-led growth versus people-led growth. Every leader listening to this podcast right now probably is like, I want to grow my team results. I want to grow my entire company. Uh, well, and what's your bit of uh, advice for them on that? Yeah, I mean, I work a lot in software and tech, right? And software and tech, you know, there's been this trend of product-led growth over the past couple of years, right? That if you create this amazing product, right? Just put it out in the market that revenue and growth will just come, right? Slack, Atlassian. There's a couple, there's a couple examples of this where a couple of great pieces of software that had free models just happened to, you know, catch fire. And right. So like once very, very smart people with MBAs and, and such start seeing those trends, right? They probably bust out the models in the Excel spreadsheets. You know, they start to think that that type of model can work for every single type of business, right? And you know, the reality of it is it just can't, and a lot of people fail getting there. But, you know, at its core, people-led growth uh, as a leader can work for any business, no matter what you sell, technology, services, software, machinery, manufacturing products, goods. Because if you, at the end of the day, if you invest in your people, right, and hiring the best people, retaining the best people, and helping your people get better every day, the products, the solutions, and the delivery to the customer is always going to be the best, right? So, like most leaders, um, if they're approving a budget, you know, and, the, and someone says, "I'm going to take this customer out to a, see a concert," it's going to cost five k. Most leaders would say, "Hey, do that, no problem at all, go for it." That's you know, take care of the customer. But if you ask most of the same leaders to spend five k to take the employees out to the same concert, they would hesitate and they would look at that as a cost, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know. Everybody wakes up every day, you know, and they have to do a job, right? And you look back at your career 10 years later, it's probably difficult to remember a single day, whether it was a good or a bad one, right? But almost everyone that I've worked with will remember the concert that you had with a couple of your peers. That was a special experience that you may have not been able to do for yourself or remembers the, you know, the event or this or the, just the sum or the investment or the little time that that leader took out of their day to make them better. Those are the things that stick with you, right? And that's what I believe in. And from, from a, a leadership and culture perspective, that's where I, I invest as much as I can. And I got another chill. I'd always get two to three chills in an interview. <laughs> and I got another one on that. It resonates with me so, so, so much. There were two moments in my career when I worked for big organizations where I had a boss do something special. And I'll kind of make it short and sweet. The first one was I was a manager level for while working for a larger retailer at their headquarters. And I wasn't bonusable in my position, but my boss was. And I worked like crazy on a specific project. 
and it came out really, really well. End of the year comes, people are getting their bonuses. I'm not getting a bonus. And I thought, man, I was starting to feel some resentment because like my role, and I, there's, and I don't know what else going to happen. I leave and I come back after lunch and there's a check on my desk for $3,000 from my boss, from his personal bank account. And I cried. Um, now, and then another moment, and in another moment, we've been working like crazy, a different company. And he's like, you guys fly today early. I'm taking you all to the finals of the U S open uh, up in New York. Very cool. And I was like, how you? Yeah, it doesn't have to be cash or big budget things too. Like one of the most meaningful moments of my career is I was a seller, my very first job, maybe two months in. And I had, I got to work and there was like a handwritten note from the VP of sales that just said, Hey, like, I know you're new. You've been doing great work, right? Keep it up. Just that, I mean, just that in itself that, you know, like he took seven minutes out of his day to write me, right? And just say that, Hey, I noticed the work you're putting in, right? That's people led growth. Yeah. How do you write to people? Well, yeah, you can send an email and that will be appropriate in your company, especially, but you go the antithesis of what your company does all day, uh, sending emails and calling and you actually write a hand written note to somebody uh, of recognition and appreciation. That's people led growth. And I like that too, because yes, you're following your customers and what they need and maybe you're changing your services and all that. But you're doing it with your people in mind. What what do I need to invest in them training-wise to get them ready for that? Like if they're the kind of person you want to be in your company for the long haul, especially if you're in technology, you probably recognize that person doesn't have the skill set they're going to need three years from now unless you help create it for them, right? I mean, it's not a good – I mean – I'm not revolutionizing. You know, Richard Branson said, I believe it was Richard Branson, you know, like um, if you invest in your people, you're investing in your clients, you know, like you're, uh, you're you, know, you know, take care of your employees and they will take care of your clients, right? That's, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a fairly simple concept, but it, it gets lost fairly easily. Everybody focuses on the customer a lot, but you realize that there's a whole lot of humans in your own organization that as a leader, like that's your customer, right? Mm-hmm. That's who I'm, that's who I'm, you know, trying to continue to to win, you know, like there's lots of SaaS metrics about annual retention rates and all of that and driving up, you know, NRR and all those fancy, you know, again, mathematical models, right? But again, there's not a lot of those mathematical models for, you know, employee retention rates and how that has an impact on business and all. There's some, there's some data on it, but there sure is, there's sure way less than the effect on retaining customers. Yeah, I mean, here you have y'all, the CEO, of a technology company who's data-driven. We talked about this throughout the episode. And we get to the leadership piece, and it's not about the tech. It's about how you're how you're working with the people. Love that. Uh, so let's so let's sort of book in the interview with a couple other more personal style questions. Sure. Because we hit you we hit you first the personal side. We got into ABM and your company. Now let's talk about you know whenever we jumped on y'all. We're talking, and it came out that Chris lost, I believe, was it 88 pounds? Yeah, about 80. 80, 80 pounds. I put and, some back on since, but. All right. Well, in, in like about a year period, is that right? Yeah. In 2022. Yeah. 2022. So what was that like? 
Um, it wasn't fun. Um, you know, and like I turned, <laughs> Wait, I turned this is not fun. Yeah, I turned 40 and I turned 40 in uh December of 2021, right? And again, like it kind of always comes back to comfort, right? I was going out to dinner on my birthday, right? And I just couldn't find clothes that fit right, you know, like I just could like I just and I just got to the point where like I'm done. I spent most of my third, I gave so much of my 30s to work and my career and the time, right? Like just gave so much of it. My, my early mornings, my evenings, my days, right? I, it was so, so work heavy, right? And I, and I deep, you know, that not only work, but family and other priorities. Yeah, and all four kids. Things. Yeah, I, I Four deep kids in a senior leadership role. That yeah. is a not a good mix for personal health. Yeah, so I deprioritized myself, right? And I just continued to kind of go the wrong way on that side and to the point where I was just, you know, it was making me, it was making me bad at everything, you know, like constantly tired, sluggish, all of that. So I just said, Hey, I'm, I'm done. And I started slow by just walking, right? I walked every day. Then I started adding, you know, like a three or four day a week, regular workout program. In, and then I really started changing my eating habits to focus more on like, you know, I pre-made my meals every week and all of that. So it's very, it's very regimented. I always, it'll be something I always struggle with. I've never had a good metabolism. I've struggled with my weight since I was nine years old right so but it's not fun in the fact that like i sure miss a lot of delicious food but and it is fun in the fact that i can i feel good in my own again in my own skin and my ability to be less tired and be you know your your body really impacts your brain performance mm -hmm. right? that's one thing i realized throughout that journey is that the, the healthier i felt some of my best ideas some of my best solutions some of my best things going forward come when i walk Right. Like, oh, I just, okay. Like, I just walk and yeah. sometimes, like, even my, even my team here says, like, hey, um, when you go on your walk, I want you to think about this. Like, because <laughs> they, like, they know that, like, I randomly I think of solutions while I'm usually walking or in that phase. When you walk, are you on a treadmill? Are you outdoors? Are you out um, things? Or? Yeah. So I split time between Chicago and Philadelphia, and both in the winter aren't, aren't very conducive to outdoors. But in the, the warmer weather months, I walk usually outdoors. I walk like I'm an early riser. So I start walking about 5 30. I walk for yeah. about 45 minutes, and then I usually do a workout at that time as well. But in the winter, it's just a treadmill. I have a Stairmaster too that I supplement mm -hmm. in time to time. But yeah. Are you a, do you listen to anything while you're? Yeah. Sometimes uh, I, I it changes. I, I, I like true crime podcasts. I listen to mm -hmm. a lot of those. You know, I listen to music sometimes. I listen to other business type podcasts. We, I have an app, and my company has an app that we use called Headway. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Headway is like a book summary app, right? Um, so I, I do that a lot. I, I've really learned over the many years that most books aren't worth the three hundred and fifty pages they're written on, right? And there's usually like six or seven key points that you can take away from most good business books um and you know apps like headway and uh blinkist do the really blinkist. summarizing mm -hmm. those so sometimes i'll just do like a book or two you know I, I try to keep it fresh so it's not like redundant yeah i've used i've used blinkist quite a bit in the past i'm not using it right now but that, i found that's been helpful to get through a lot of books quickly wow so many good things there was there was there one now you mentioned your workouts you mentioned your diet was there one diet that you prescribe to that helps you stay lean or, or uh... no, I, I mean, I literally made uh, like 15 of the same meal over. Like I made, it was chicken, broccoli and rice, like grilled chicken, broccoli and rice 15 times a week. That was the, so you eliminated, you eliminated decision-making on what you're going to eat. 
And you, uh, as my friend Chris Brogan says, you put success in your way by having your meals. So, I mean, like since since I've been traveling for my new role, it's diff- it's more difficult to do that. Right, it's harder on the road. Yeah, I, I've obviously yeah. I put a few of the pounds back on. But I've been you know a little bit back more regimented. But I, the other thing I do as well is if I go out to eat, I usually just I half the meal right before like. Like when they give you the like for whatever reason in the United States, everybody feels like the portion sizes need to be seven X where the rest of the world needs to be. Uh, Correct. Yes. Yeah. So what I usually do is I like before the meal starts, I'll ask for a box and then I'll cut the meal in half and put it in the box and put it away. So I I don't eat it because I will eat it. If it sits in front of you, you will eat it. This is true. I'm definitely a clean the plate kind of guy. I try to take again, take the bad choices out of my way. That's a great hack. Order the box in advance, and you can even go one step further. You're like, look, you're going to bring me this meal. Just go ahead and cut it in half before you bring it to me, and then bring it half of it in the box, half of it on the plate. The biggest misconception is it's about what you eat, and that's important, right? But really, especially in the U.S., it's portion control. Yeah. Right? We eat just simply too much. Yeah, and I've I've enjoyed learning about blue zones. Are you familiar with the blue zones where they say the the National Geographic guy, and he studied <laughs> octogenarians, so people 80 and up around, there are like different populations around the globe where there's trends. And one of it is you only eat to like 80% full, you know, you know, at your meals. And there's a whole bunch of other things, but that's one of the one of the things here. All right, so wrapping up here, I thought it sure. would be apropos because you got four kids and your studio and you like movies. You might have some awesome recommendations for leaders with kids. And so you have this problem because your kids are awake, you're awake, it's nighttime, you're going to watch something, but you can't necessarily put on Ted Lasso for them because they're going to hear all the words and stuff in Ted Lasso. Do you have any recommendations on that front? Well, I'll tell you first off that I'm a terrible parent in that regard because I let my kids really watch anything. I really do. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you're a role model on that. I personally believe that like, hey, they're going to hear it anyway, right? They're going to hear okay. like, you know, like what I, and I just. Uh, how old are your kids? How old are they? Uh, so my oldest is 20. My youngest is eight. So. That's a complicated movie night. Yeah. So I've had like, I've actually had this discussion with my 10 year old who just most recently got into like swearing and like wanting to swear, like, like, yeah, we'll listen to songs. And she'll want to like say the swear word in the song, yeah, right? And that conversation these aren't like this isn't like Dre or Tupac. It's like Pink who might say, yes. you know, a song, right? Yeah, like or yeah. Smith might swear in a song. Yeah. And she'll always be like, "Who well, can I swear? Can I say the word?" And and I've always said like, "Hey, if if it's part of art, if it's somebody's art, whether it's a movie or music or something of that nature, then yes, you can say it and or embrace it, right?" Yes, but yes. But you should not be using those words as part of your art, right? Because at this particular junction, it's not, it shouldn't be used. You shouldn't be using it that way. Can you engage with it and interpret it as someone else's art? Yes, I'm perfectly fine with that. But you should not use it as part of your narrative. So that's where, that's the line I've drawn with my kids. I really like that. And we've had a similar conversation. My daughter's 12 now, but when she was probably like an eight or nine, we, uh, we like a band called the Avid Brothers. And they have a song called Smithsonian and they drop a few words in there and she's just singing them loud and proud. And we have that conversation similar, like, Hey, it's part of art. You know, it's a different thing than actually using them at people. Yeah. 
And it sounds like you talk to your kids like they're like they're adults in terms of very much. Yeah, yeah. my eight year old don't baby talk. My eight year old is an adult. She talks to me like I'm an adult. So like everybody has that one kid who's like generationally ahead of the game. So there's that. But I mean, to, to your original question, like I love kids movies. I'll always have like kids movies, if you will, right? So like I, I mean all the you know all of them, right? My one of my top. One of my favorite movies, people say like, oh, your favorite kid's movie. I'm like, no, my favorite movie is How to Train Your Dragon, right? Like, oh. like the, that whole series is probably one of the most underrated animated films that I've, I've seen come out. Story, animation, topic, the whole, the whole, the whole trilogy is just fantastic. I'm going to go back and check it out. I really enjoy it. I, I forgot how much I enjoyed that trilogy. So good. Yeah. Wow. I was thinking of, uh, something that we've gotten into is glee and there now that thing brings up some heavy duty topics yeah. and we've had some you know there's talk about you know sex and things like that in there but the the attitude of the whole thing is so darn positive and they're so talented engaging and the adult and we like it as adults and she's doing it allows us to have conversations about these areas that we might not have as a regularly. So we're like, you can watch this with us. You just got to be willing to talk about anything that comes up. And she's like, okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of TV and movies are, oh, I've always been great for that. Mm. You know, it's always, that's why I've always loved that stuff. Yeah. I got two more questions. Quick questions. Sure. Number one, is there a movie that you like to recommend that your team watch or your company watch? to sort of understand a certain philosophy or, or something along, along those lines? No, you know, I reference movies all the time, you know, like I'll pull little snippets or quotes out of some, right. And I'll, I'll, I'll share some of those, but I mean, there's, I don't think there's like a whole movie that encompasses, you know, like, Hey, you should watch this, right? Like okay. I have a book, right. I think everybody in any company should uh, read the book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, right? Like oh. if, if you work in business, right, no matter whether you're a senior leader or someone who's just starting your career, that's like a two-hour read that is fascinating. It's written in a narrative form and like the, the takeaways are consistently universal. I read the book every year. Cool. Great recommendation there. And what's your parting thought for our listeners today, um, Mr. Chris? No, I mean, I guess my parting thought is is the is the one that we opened with, right? Is the you know, if you can go back and I'm sure if you can go back and tell yourself when the 25 you're 25 yourself, it would probably be just, you know, don't worry so much, right? Just just Bobby McFerrin. Just don't stress about all of the little things because you will not remember them, right? You'll go back and you'll and you know, from a parenting standpoint, as we talked about that, right? Your kids won't remember who won the game or what place they showed up in the tournament or how good their team was or any of those things that we think matter as a parent. Like I have older kids and I have younger kids and my older kids, if you ask them what they remembered, they would remember that like my son played lacrosse competitively for eight years. I mean, one tournament after tournament. And if you asked him any given time, what, what tournament he won or what place they got in, he wouldn't be able to tell you one single, right? But one tournament got canceled in San Diego that we were out there and we rented a Corvette and drove up and down the San Diego coast. And he remembers that day like it was yesterday. Right. So don't, yeah, don't stress, about, don't stress about the little things. Right. You know, so that's, that would be my, my, my ending point. Oh, Chris. I mean, hmm. 
Grand Slam, my friend. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. It was fun. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.